There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We're lawyers, mothers, and co-hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. We have more in common than divides us. In a world that defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. The choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Nuanced Life. We have some really fun subject matters today. We're going to offer up advice for people considering law school or starting law school. And we're going to commemorate the authorship of a listener's first novel. I'm really excited about this episode. I totally agree with you. This is what I need right now. Yeah, we're going to keep it light and breezy today, y'all. Although, let me just tell you, there ain't nothing light and breezy about law school. That's okay, though. We'll get into that. It's funny, like, the context of your life when questions about career are light and breezy. It just tells you a lot about the context that we're living in. Let's start with Addie, who is 22 years old and is just asking generally if we have advice or insight for someone considering law school. Addie has also thought about a public administration or public policy master's degree. And she wants to know, since we've both been to law school, if we would say the benefits outweigh the costs. Well, I mean, it depends, Addie. If you get scholarships... (laughs) Then for sure, the benefits outweigh the costs. If you are going to be saddled with six figures in debt, that is a tougher call. I would like to revise some of my previous statements on this topic, particularly because we have a listener who's a law school dean who has written to me about my lack of grace occasionally talking about law school. And she is right. And I think that what is most important in answering this question is what expectations are you waltzing into law school with? Because... I waltzed into law school with the expectation that I would graduate, get a high-paying job where I would feel like every day I was pursuing truth, justice, in the American way, and be enormously (laughs) helpful to society and personally fulfilled. And all of those expectations, except for the money one, which came much harder than I thought it was going to, were sorely disappointed. But that is because of the choices that I made in the path I pursued. Well, I will say, I don't think you speak with a lack of grace about law school. You speak with, and I'm not I'm not categorizing it as a lack of grace, but I think what you're usually talking is being a lawyer, not law school. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't have a bad time in law school. Law school was fun. I had an amazing group of people that were in my law school, and particularly my section, two of which are still my dearest friends who I talk to almost every day. I think I learned a lot about people and myself. I learned an amazing amount about our society and the law and the history of our country. I really loved law school itself. And I did not go in with the expectations of like, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to make money. I'm going to be a lawyer. I really never wanted to be a lawyer. I always thought that I would pursue a career in politics. That's why I went to law school. And... You know, I think, sadly, because of my age and a lot of reasons, I just did not think about the impact of the debt I was taking on. And that, I think, is just what I would advise. Just be 
totally clear-eyed. If you can go to law school with a minimal amount of debt, then yeah, go to law school. I think the skills of analysis and language you learn, that is an incredible benefit as you move through lots of points in life and as you start a career is really, really beneficial. You just have to be, like you said, like you have to have really clear expectations of how much is this going to cost? How am I going to pay it back? Can I do it without incurring a lot of debt? And what is my expectation for how I will use this degree? We are both kind of products of a certain period of time when people were applying to law school with the idea like you go to law school and you make a lot of money. I don't think that's I, I, I feel like that has shifted dramatically and people don't feel that way anymore. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like that that conversation has shifted? I hope so. I think it mostly has. I mean, I, I definitely think people go in now understanding that there is a limited big firm universe that's real hard to mm-hmm. get into and that that's where all the money and it's not is. Fulfilling. And it's, yeah. And it, and it is also where the grind is. You know, the friends I have who are happiest and most fulfilled with their law degree are pursuing careers in public policy or legal aid. Or I have a friend who's the legal director of ACLU in uh, West Virginia. And I'm like so almost envious of her career. Like she does amazing things. I think that there are really fulfilling careers available in the law. Unfortunately, they are usually not well compensated. (laughs) And But, you know, look, that's true of a lot of things in life. And so I think that if that's what you, as long as you, again, are really clear-eyed about, like, what you are wanting to do and what part of the work you think would be fulfilling and how the law degree will help you get there, then that it can be a decision worth making. If I could redesign the whole system, the first year of law school is something that I wish every American had access to. Yeah, because it totally. is so foundational to what it means to live in a democratic republic, how the court yep. systems work, all of your rights, just the language of the law coming into your fingertips is is so empowering and wonderful. And I wish that everybody could have that. Uh, second and third years of law school, I could have done without personally. I was yep. burned out yep. at that point. I'd never found them relevant to my practice You know, it's just a marathon. They're just seeing if you can stand it. And that's the same thing the bar exam is. Can you stand it? That's it. I think another problem with the legal profession that I just want to flag for people going into it is that there are some pretty entrenched ways of thinking about what different law schools prepare you to do. And so if you want to eventually run for local office, there is some wisdom in going to law school in your state. That's not a hard and fast rule, but you get a really good network of future Kentucky politicians by going to UK or UofL or NKU. If you want to run for office on a national level, you get a really nice national network by going to some of the bigger law schools. Sarah's network is amazing because of her law school experience nationwide. And then if you want to be a professor or you want to clerk for a Supreme Court justice, that's where you're going to be looking at those Ivy League schools. Now, that doesn't mean every door is closed to you if you don't know from day one where you want to end up and what you're going to be doing. 
But it's harder. It's a lot harder to walk through those doors if you sort of deviate from people's expectations about what going to this school means for your future. And again, I think that's wrong. I think it perpetuates so many of the problems that exist within law mm-hmm. firms and within court systems. And and it's also just something that I wish someone had sat me down and talked to me about more as I was making those decisions. Because truly, I love the law. And I discover that the more I do this work, and I probably would have been happiest as a as a law professor, but I was never on that path from year one of law school. I was never on that path. Now, I feel like I get to sort of be that in the way that I most live my best life by doing Supreme Court breakdowns on Pantsy Politics Patreon. That's where I get to exercise those muscles. So I never want to talk about my experience in law school as though it was not worthwhile. In many ways, it is more worthwhile to me today than it's ever been. And also, I just think setting those expectations at the beginning and really examining why am I doing this and what am I willing to give up or pause or sacrifice in pursuit of it uh, at the beginning is a is a good way to set yourself up for success. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I think part of the calculus is the network. And it is true that that is also a part of the complete bullshit aspect of gatekeeping. That is the LSAT. That right. is law school. That is most certainly the third year of law school and is definitely the bar exam. It's just gatekeeping. It is completely irrelevant to the practice of law. Like most lawyers, you will tell you, including my own husband, will say, all I learned in law school was how to pass exams. And all I learned in studying for the bar was how to pass the bar exam. And I learned everything about being a lawyer from practicing law and being trained by other attorneys. So it just like many other institutions and systems is in dramatic need of re-envisioning. But I think you just have to sort of know all that going in. People will tell you that in law school, you learn to think like a lawyer. I think we should retire that expression because I think you learn in law school to think like a law professor, to enjoy these big themes, to look for those big themes in cases, to value some of the guiding lights for courts. Lawyers are much more transactional than that. In practice, they have to be. And so if you go into the practice of law with that sort of law professor hat on, well, isn't this interesting? And don't these things connect? And what about the big picture? You're going to be far too creative to start the grind of practicing law every day. It is a noble profession. There are important things about it. I don't mean to dismiss what lawyers do. I just mean to say, when you hear you learn to think like a lawyer in law school, I think you're learning to think differently than you actually need to think to be a really good advocate for clients in the real world. We also got it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A really amazing commemoration from Soleil, who several years ago started thinking, I want to go to law school. And then got divorced, got waylaid along life's journey, but recommitted herself to getting into law school and pursued the LSAT and a good score on the LSAT 
in a way I have not heard anybody pursue it. She took it multiple times, kept going back and kept going back. I am really impressed with her grit and determination because she was also going through layoffs and moves and studying for the LSAT and researching schools and just all of it. But she did it. She got through it. She got into law school, got several offers of financial assistance and scholarships. And so here she is, three years later, embracing the uncertainty, saying yes to the idea of going to law school and feeling very daunted about beginning law school in a couple months at the age of 39. So she's asking us, once you finally made the call to go to law school, how do you actually prepare to start that journey? Well, I have to first say that Soleil has taught me something important here because I have specifically said to people, I'm not sure that you can study for the LSAT. I think it's kind of a way that you're disposed to think or not. And so I am just blown away and impressed and in love with her commitment. Because I'll tell you what, if I had taken it and not done well the first time, I don't know that I would have done it again. It's miserable. And it did feel to me like, I don't know how to study for this. I feel like you just have to kind of practice these sort of problems because it's just mostly about logic and the way that you approach a very specific type of test question. And I've just never thought that you're able to train yourself to do that. And so hats off, Soleil, for that. Yeah, seriously. So I will say I'm a pretty unique case. I was very blessed because when I started law school, my husband had just graduated. And so I had my own personal law school guide who told me things like, do not put off the reading do the reading when it is assigned. <laughs> Do not put it off. You cannot procrastinate. Who gave me good advice about moot court and law journal, who would walk me around. I remember pacing around the block as I worked out the particular legal conundrum I was addressing in my law school note. So, you know, I had a really good guide. And I don't think you have to be married to one, but I think finding someone in your life or or making a friend because I think it's so hard as a 1L to just be around other 1Ls. But if you can find somebody who's been through it before, like you're doing with us, that can say, okay, here's what I've learned. And listening to that guidance, especially at your own particular law school, because that guidance is going to shift and change, I think, depending on the environment in which you are, is really helpful. You know, for me, the most important thing that I stumbled into as a 1L was a friendship with two other 1Ls. Both of them were folks who had worked and then come back to law school. And so I feel so blessed that they took me in as somebody who went straight through school. I'm sure I seemed young and idiotic to them at many different points. But having those two people to study with, just to endure it all with, was so vital to my survival through law school. So I think both having a mentor who's been through it before and having people who are going along with you is a really big deal because you just if you try to do this alone, you will be so miserable. Yeah. I will also say, and it sounds like Soleil is like 
very practiced at listening to her own intuition. You know, she talks through this message about how she heard this voice. It kept kind of calling out to her. She saw indications that barriers to law school were coming down and she followed it. So I think you're really attuned to this. Stay with that voice. Do not try to emulate what everybody else is doing around you. There are people who will make you believe that if you aren't falling asleep with your nose in the book in the library every night, you're missing it. And that's just you got to embrace your way of learning and where and how you study best, where and how you read best. The peer pressure in law school is enormous. Mm -hmm. It's just important to disconnect from that and believe in your own methods. Yeah, I mean, if we're if it sounds like we're offering you sort of paradoxical advice, it's because we are like one L is you're consumed with people and you have to find your people. And also you have to like be able to disconnect from that environment, which I think was also helpful is like my husband could say, OK, that's not as important as everyone's saying it is. Let it go. It's just, you know, and I think, listen, Soleil is starting law school at 39. She is going to be so far ahead of a lot of people as far as understanding herself and being self-aware of like what works and what doesn't and the effect of stress like listen she's they're all going to be like flocking to her I feel like for advice and like just a steady foundation this is my gut instinct and I think you know I saw that in my own law school we had a couple of friends in my 1L class who were older and who'd been out in the career world and then went back to law school one of which my friend David Greengrass, we called him the reasonable man, like, because that's a standard in the law. And so he became <laughs> our, like, reasonable man. He now works for the Judiciary Committee, if you want to feel better about the state of our government. But I think that sort of understanding, like, what works for me? When do I need to listen to the advice, especially if it's coming from professors? When do I need to turn out the anxiety of my fellow 1Ls? Like, if you can strike that balance, you will be fine, fine, fine. And this is like anything else in life, but... Who is the measurer of your performance matters a lot. So the the individual professors are going to create their exams differently. They're going to grade those exams differently. They're going to conduct their classes differently. There are classes where the professor is going to teach you exactly what you need to know for the exam in the words that professor likes those concepts explained. And what you need to do is be the best note taker on earth and get into that professor's brain. There are other professors who what they talk about in class is going to have like almost no connection to what ends up being on the exam. And so going out and buying the summary of tort law or whatever is going to be very valuable to you with that professor. And so just like listening to what other students in the school who've had those professors have to say about those classes is a big deal. And that's just like any workplace. We talk about our work as though there is an objective standard of what's effective and not effective or good and bad. And it's so much more about who's measuring. And that is particularly true when it comes to law school and exams. But listen, based on what you told us about your tackling of the LSAT and your ability to time manage in the face of some real adult responsibilities, I think you're going to be fine. You are. You you sound very tenacious and wise. And that is not true. It certainly was not true of me as a law student. So <laughs> you're going to be fine. Last, we have a commemoration from Lindsay who says, I have written a novel. Typos and wonky sentences and all, I have sculpted 106,000 of my own words into a story arc that I hope is entertaining and delightful to a reader. I started this process almost 10 years ago. 
with a loose idea and some flat characters. I filled with the same few pages for years, but found little time for recreational writing as I juggled freelance writing work with just dating, birthing, and raising four boys. Like most aspiring novelists, I dreamed of the day when life let up a little and I'd be able to sit in a secluded office with a steaming cup of herbal tea and let all of those ideas that live in my head flow into the page. With a rowdy crew of young boys to wrangle, I knew that this day would be years away, but I should have known that this day did not exist for a mom. I wasn't until I revisited an old favorite, The Paris Wife, on audiobook while packing boxes for our second move in five years, that I had a cathartic realization. I am not Ernest Hemingway or F. Scott Fitzgerald. I will never be able to leave my family for a year to live in the French countryside and devote my every waking moment to writing the next great American novel. Moreover, I am not trying to write the next great American novel. I'm just trying to write a novel, words on paper that I'm not too embarrassed to have someone else read. After a year and a half of intermittent dedication, I am proud to say that I got those words on paper. They were not written in a quaint cottage or in a rousing cafe. They were written in my kitchen table in the middle of the night or on my couch while wedged between my three-year-old with Scooby-Doo playing in the background. My words will not be studied by eighth grade students for decades to come, but they might one day be appreciated by a stranger who needs something to read on the beach. I still have to take on the overwhelming task of polishing my draft and building up the courage to submit it to literary agents and being okay if nothing else comes of it. In the meantime, however, I can celebrate the fact that I am now technically a novelist. Oh, that makes me cry so hard, Lindsay. That is so beautiful. Yeah, it makes me emotional, too. I just think there's something, whether it's writing a novel or any other kind of blue sky dream that you have, when a woman who is mothering young children says, mm-hmm. my aspiration is important enough not to wait, it moves me, especially because so many people have said to me, like, when did you find time to do the podcast or how did you how could you possibly be doing this? And I the only thing I knew to say was like, we just do because it's important to me. And how that seemed to be such an unsatisfying answer to everyone. I think that really connects to what Lindsay's saying about she just did. She didn't wait yeah. for the conditions to be right or for somebody to give her permission or or for someone to applaud what she's created now that she's created it. She just did because it was important to her. And that, to me, is like a revolutionary act. Several years ago, I wrote a piece for Megan Francis on her blog. And I said, you know, at the time I was just... Uh, blogging primarily. And I said, you know, in the same way that mothers understand that moment when you get pregnant with your second child and you think, how will I ever love them as much as I love this first baby? Can I love them as much? Because your love feels so huge. And then your heart expands to make space for this new child. And so we know Lindsay has a very expansive heart if it is filled with four boys. But In that same way, your time expands. When it's worth doing, you find the time. I remember when I took a writing class from Megan Francis a million years ago, and she said when she built her freelancing career, I just stopped watching TV. I just don't watch TV. You know, I had she has five children. And she was like, I just don't watch TV anymore. And I thought that sounded so crazy at the time. And then for a lot of different reasons, I kind of just stopped watching TV. Like, I watch very little TV. And when I took up way more reading, um, and I made time for reading because it was really important to me, I think, because I do ultimately want to write my own novel. I just found the time. You know, when it's something you really love and you feel driven to do it, other stuff that's less important because time is a finite resource falls away and you stop looking for the perfect environment to do it in. You know, we podcasted in our closets 
or in our bedrooms on the floor, we made it work for a long time. And, you know, I think this vision driven by a male version of artistic creation and expression that you go away and you and you're on this perfect little island and you feel, you know, and this is not a new thing. I think Elizabeth Gilbert has written about this beautifully in Ann Patchett that you just that's not it, man. Like, (laughs) is that how it works for women? Yeah, we want a room of one's own. But sometimes that room of one's own is on the couch watching Scooby-Doo. And I think that that is so inspiring and so beautiful. And I am so happy, so, so happy for Lindsay. And I cannot wait to see that novel in print and read it on a beach one day. Well, we are so inspired by all of the things that you're doing while you're on the couch watching Scooby-Doo and doing all the other things that you do in life, because none of us, whether we have children or not, truly get that island as often as we wish that it were there for us. So whatever you're pursuing, keep pursuing it. Keep telling us about it, letting us celebrate with you. It's such a gift. We'll be back with you here again on Wednesday on Pantsuit Politics on Friday between now and then. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces The Nuanced Life. Elise Knapp is our managing director. The Nuanced Life is listener-supported. Go to patreon.com slash the nuanced life. For $5 each month, you'll receive an entire bonus episode of The Nuanced Life. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Dylan Garvin is the composer and performer of our ad music. For more information about The Nuanced Life and to connect with us through our weekly email, visit pantsuitpoliticsshow.com.